0: be getting old. Man, that long. I'll tell you what. Uh, no, we, uh, we have been blessed to be here. Um, I'll be honest, it hasn't always been easy, but ministry, talk to any pastor, they'll <laughs> tell you it hasn't always been easy, but uh, this has been a good place to raise our family. Uh, this has been a tremendous community. And uh, we just feel blessed to be here. So again, thank you so much. Uh, and again, welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, I want to say a shout out to our uh, family church at home campus uh, online, watching online. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning as well. Do me a favor, throw another log on the fire for me, would you? And uh, stay warm this morning. We're continuing a series we began a couple of weeks ago titled I'm In. And uh, in this series, we're looking at, at four big themes. And all four of these themes have to do with how God sees you. We began the series by looking at how God sees us as invited, our very first message, if you can remember back that far. Um, God sees us as invited, invited to serve, invited to worship him. Uh, Then the next week after that, week two, we saw how God sees us as as invaluable, Uh, invaluable to his plan and his purpose for our lives. And this morning, we're going to talk about how God sees us as influential for God's glory. Then next week, the Lord willing, we'll conclude the series by seeing how God sees us as invested, invested in his work. But this morning, I want you to see yourself as an influencer, because regardless of how you see yourself, God sees you as an influencer. So in order to sort of set the table, bring some context for this morning's message, I want to begin with a statement that I hope you'll embrace and take ownership of, and that is this reality right here. You have no idea, no idea how one conversation, one word of encouragement, or one expression of love might change someone's life. You don't. You have no idea how God might use one word, one moment, one generous expression, and one generous expression in the life of another person to love them towards the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to this word influence, I, I kind of feel the need to qualify that for us. Here's why. I think our culture has kind of hijacked that term influence or influencer and made it something totally different than what it was in my generation growing up. Let me explain. I did a little research on this word influence, and when I typed in this question, what is an influencer, the very first definition that came up online was this. An influencer is an individual who has the power to affect the purchase decisions Of others because of their authority, knowledge, or relationship with their audience. I read that and I'm like, what? Really? I mean, that's what an influencer is? Someone who influences purchase decisions because of the number of followers they have on social media? I'm a little confused because, see, when I was growing up, an influencer was a coach or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher if you went to school or if you went to church growing up, uh, maybe a parent or a grandparent, maybe a good friend. Not today. It's changed, hasn't it? Due in large part to social media, culture has hijacked the term and many people would say an influencer is a celebrity, uh, a music artist, uh, a sports figure, someone maybe who's amassed uh, a large number of followers on social media. So, what I want to do today is, is reclaim that word influencer because I want you to see yourself as an influencer. Here's why you have no idea how our God could use one word of encouragement that you give to someone else, one moment or one expression of faith to change someone else's life. For those of you that are Jesus followers, and I realize that maybe not everyone here is there yet, and that's all right, you're still welcome here. But for those of you who are Jesus followers, I want to show you exactly what Jesus says you are, or who Jesus says you are. In the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the the Mount, Jesus used two metaphors to help us see how he sees us um, as influencers. Matthew, who was there in person and heard the sermon in real time, tells us what those metaphors are. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 14, says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, You are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Well, salt does a number of things. It, it purifies. Salt preserves. Salt adds flavor. Salt also melts ice. How many of you know that this world is not only a dark place, sometimes it's a very cold place as well? Not just the person sitting next to you and tell them, you know, you're kind of salty. Go ahead, go ahead. All right, then turn to, turn to the person on the other side, your second choice. And tell them, you know, you look kind of lit. No, wait, wait, wait. Maybe, maybe, maybe don't do that. Maybe don't do that. Then no, I'm just. In the same way, Jesus says, "Let your light shine before others. Let your love and influence people towards Jesus. Let your light shine that they may see your good work, good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven." Let's reclaim the true meaning of what it is to be an influencer. And look, I'm, I'm not against influencers in our, in our culture. I'm not. But the problem with our current view of influence is that it typically starts with platform, right? The size of your platform determines your scope of influence in our culture today. And I totally disagree with that idea. Platform doesn't determine the scope of our influence. People determine the scope of our influence, not platform. True and lasting influence always starts with the people, with people, not uh, platform. The good news is, All of us, you, me, every one of us, we all have people in our sphere of influence that we come into contact with every single day. You are called, I am called to be an influencer. And then I came across this interesting statistic. On average, uh, we live for about 78.3 years. Uh, Most of us remember people that we meet after about age five. So assume that we interact with three new people, and that's a conservative number. Assuming we interact with three new people daily, 365 days a year, quantify that with the equation 78.3 years, subtract the five, since we don't typically remember a whole lot of the people we met before we were five years old, right? Times three people a day, that is 365.24, gotta allow for the leap years, right? And you end up with 80,000 people that we will meet over the course of our lifetime. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Over the course of your lifetime, over the course of my lifetime, we will meet around 80,000 people. But research has also discovered that we greatly, this is amazing, we greatly influence about 47 of those people during our lifetime. Now, the article didn't really define what greatly influence meant. But if this is true, and we have no reason to doubt that it is, but if this is true, if we have the power to change the trajectory of almost 50 people's lives during the course of our lifetime, that's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it certainly caused me to take pause and think about how I am influencing people. So as I was contemplating this idea and looking back over my life, I began to think of some of the people who spoke into to my life and influenced me over the years. And, and see, the more you ponder this idea, it really becomes a big idea. Because think about this. The people who influenced me are also influencing you, right? Right? It's kind of a trickle-down effect. Because to a, great, to a great degree, I am a byproduct of the people who spoke into my life and influenced me. And now, because of what I do as a pastor, as a shepherd, you guys are a byproduct of what I speak into your life and how I influence you. So can you see how the trajectory of that would just, man, it just grow and grow and grow. So this got me to thinking about those people who helped influence me to believe that God could actually use me in a way that he is today. Because there was a time in my life when I never thought I would be doing what I'm doing today. Not only did I never want to be a pastor, she never wanted to marry a pastor. And she'll tell you that. You never should have gone to Bible school then, honey. I'm sorry. What what, what do what do you think you were doing? What do you think was going to happen down there, right? So how did we end up here? Well, time doesn't allow me to share the whole story, but part of the story ties in to the people who helped shape and influence my walk with God. Again, I don't have time to mention all of them, but here are a few of them. Nick Willems and Bob Mendelson. Both Nick and Bob were a couple of the lead elders in the church that I started attending shortly after surrendering my life to the Lord back in 1976. As I look back on that time in my life, I, don't, I guess I didn't realize how much of an influence that they would have on me, but they were sort of like a, like spiritual bookends Uh, of my relationship with the Lord during those formidable years uh, of my walk with God, just early on, first two or three years of my life. You know, the Bible occasionally mentions these two ideas of grace and truth. In fact, John, the gospel writer, not John the Baptist, but John the apostle who wrote the gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he would at times talk about how Jesus was the perfect embodiment, the perfect balance between grace and truth. Here's what he said in John 1:14. He said, And the word became flesh, he's talking about Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And and, and these two ideas, these two truths, are the perfect balance needed to accomplish what God has for us. We need grace for the times we stumble and fail but we need truth to hold us accountable to God's word and keep us on target for accomplishing his goal and plans for our life, right? So early on in my life, Nick was the grace. Nick was the grace and Bob was the truth. I'd go to Nick when I needed some guidance, direction, or just some comfort. I'd go to Nick when I needed to be spiritually coddled or pampered. I didn't go to Bob. In fact, there were times I tried to avoid Bob (laughs) because Bob wouldn't coddle me. Bob would speak truth into my life. Bob would hold me accountable. Bob didn't pull any punches. Bob wouldn't pamper me. Bob would challenge me. And I didn't like it because, frankly, at that time in my life, I was still playing games with God. I wasn't where I should have been with God. And I wasn't as serious with him as I should have been in my walk. And I think Bob knew that. He had had my well-being and my best interest in mind. I just didn't realize it because I wasn't doing what I should have been doing at that time in my life in my walk with God. In fact, one afternoon, I was walking down on Mass Street in Lawrence, and I happened to see Bob, because uh, Bob was an evangelist, too. He'd go out and uh, just cold, just go up and witness to people. He, he had he had fear of no one. But one time, I was walking on Mass Street down in Lawrence, and I happened to see Bob half a block away, and I tried to, I tried to hide from him. I did. I'd duck into a store, because so, he wouldn't see me, so he wouldn't see me, because I knew if he saw me, he'd come up, and you know, I mean, not in a mean way, it's just, you know, you know when you're not right, and you're around someone who is, you kind of get that guilty conscience type thing, right? Today, Nick's gone on to his reward in heaven, and Bob ended up getting involved with Jews for Jesus Ministry, serving and ministering in San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C., eventually launching the Jews for Jesus Ministry in Sydney, Australia, where he's at today. Him and his wife, Patty, still serve there today. As I've grown and matured spiritually over the years, I've grown to appreciate Bob and how God used him in such a tremendous way through the Jews for Jesus ministry, but also how he spoke into my life. In fact, we've had Bob come here on a couple of occasions. Uh, I tried to get him to come back this spring to do another Christ in the Passover. So how, how many of you were here when Bob did the Christ in the... Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, but we couldn't get it. Our, our, our schedules couldn't work it out, so I don't know if we're going to be able to get him this year or not. But honestly, as much as I tried to avoid Bob back then, I actually enjoy being around him now. In fact... Uh, I just, I just like sitting and listening to him. Sue and I talk about this. Bob is one of those guys that you could just sit and listen to all day. He's the type of guy that could make the schematics of a thermostat sound interesting. <laughs> um, his knowledge of the Old Testament, the Bible in general, but the Old is amazing. And, and, and that's, that's why I like having him come because he kind of opens up all that to us, right? So so Nick and Bob were both influencers in my life, but there were a couple other people who influenced me spiritually as well. Uh, Ted Sauer, who was my roommate when I went to Bible school. Mike McMenemy uh, was also a friend who was instrumental in helping me grow spiritually when I was a, a baby Christian and very young in the Lord. The former pastor here at this church, Otis Clemens, who's also gone on to his reward in heaven, was also an influence in my life. Barry Foster, Brad Mayhew, they all had some influence in my life, especially during those formidable years when I was still new to Christianity and trying to figure out how all this worked. Uh, Brother Larry Martin, who was my pastor and mentor when we served as youth pastors down in Oklahoma for a couple of years. Uh, To this day, Brother Larry is one of the best preachers I have ever heard. Tremendous preacher. right? And then over the years through Bible school and seminary, I had some other professors, men of God, who influenced me as well. The point being, we all have people who have influenced us in some way. And here's the thing. We have no idea what one word of encouragement might do to influence someone. In fact, I still remember a statement that Barry Foster made to me early on in my walk with God. Actually, it was a verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where the apostle Paul said to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I've always remembered that verse for some reason. I wasn't even in ministry at the time. But, so I think he was speaking prophetically over me. But I've always remembered that, just that one verse. He probably doesn't know that if you're watching, Bob. Or if you're watching Barry, I do remember that verse. But I I never thought it would hang with me and be with me this many years later. But here's what I hope you'll understand. Influence isn't always obvious. Influence isn't always obvious. Influence isn't always instant. Just because you don't see a harvest doesn't mean that your seed didn't take root. You have no idea how God might use you in one moment to plant a seed that will grow into real and lasting influence in the life of somebody that you love and care about. In fact, we're going to look at a story this morning of perhaps the most unlikely influencer in the New Testament. The story takes place in John chapter 4, and it's about a woman that nobody ever thought would have influence. The context of the story is Jesus was on a trip and on his journey. uh, Him and his guys were passing through Samaria, which was an unusual choice because Jews and Samaritans, they didn't like each other. Uh, To say they didn't get along would be a tremendous understatement. Jews did not act, interact with Samaritans because Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. Many, many years, we don't have time to go into the whole story, but many, many years before this, in, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And any time an opposing nation conquered a city, they would, uh, they, would, they would kill a lot of the people, but they would also take a lot of the people back and transplant them Uh, any of those survivors of the conquered city. They take them back to their homeland and assimilate them into their culture and life. And that's exactly what Assyria did with many of the Israelites at that time. And so during those years, God's people spent in exile. Many of the Israelites married into Samaritan families, which led to a blending of cultures and to some degree, religious followings. Over the centuries, there had been bloodshed between the two groups and their resentment and mistrust remained strong and deep. Therefore, Jews commonly looked at Samaritans with contempt. In fact, when Jews needed to travel, think about this, when Jews needed to travel from Judea to Galilee, they would usually add three days to their journey and go around Samaria just so they wouldn't have to pass through there. In fact, the Jews considered Samaritans less than human and worse than dogs. You could never interact with a Samaritan if you were a Jew, especially a Samaritan woman. So one day... Jesus was with his guys, and they're on the way to Galilee, but they're going through Samaria. About midday, they got tired and hungry and thirsty, and they're right outside of a town called Sychar, and there was a well there, and they happened to be uh, thirsty, and so they stopped to get a drink at that well because that would have been the town's water source. After getting drinks, the disciples head on into town to get something to eat, but Jesus stayed at the well. Why did Jesus stay at the well while the disciples went into town? Well, we're about to find out why. The disciples didn't know this, but he did. That's why he sent them on into town while he remained there by the well. While Jesus is resting by the well, waiting on his guys to get back with lunch, in the middle of the day, a Samaritan woman who lived in Sychar came to the well to get some water. While she's getting water from the well, Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, a couple of things here. First, there's a reason this woman came to the well at midday. Most people got their water two times a day, in the mornings and in the evenings. But this woman comes out at midday. Why? Well, as we progress through the story, we're going to find out why. And remember, not only did Jews not speak to Samaritans, neither did men speak to women in public at that time in that culture. I know it sounds very chauvinistic, but that's how things were in that culture. So not only did men not speak to women in public in that culture, they not only they not, neither did they speak to Samaritans. All right? So, in fact, I, I sometimes tell women, if they're not a Christian, that they should consider following Jesus for what he did for women's rights alone. Seriously, Jesus was the greatest liberator of all time, but that's for another sermon. So this woman from Sychar comes to the well in the middle of the day, not expecting to see anyone there, but to her surprise, she sees Jesus sitting by the well. As she lowers her pot or bucket or whatever they use to get water down into the well, Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And this this surprises her. First, she's shocked to see anyone there by the well at that time of day. Then she's shocked that this man, this stranger, would talk to her. But Jesus dignifies her by starting a conversation and she's thrown completely off guard. John 4 verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In other words, this woman was surprised. She's shocked. She's overwhelmed. She's beside herself. She never expected this is unheard of. No Jewish man would ever approach a Samaritan woman. So she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Well, let's read on in verse 10. Jesus answered her, and and, and listen, you can sense his love and compassion in his reply to the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Interesting phrase there. At this point, the woman's intrigued but a little confused. So she says in verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is very deep. Where do you get this living water that you're talking about? Jesus answers her in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again this woman notices something different about this man. And she says in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or or have to come here to draw water every day. At this point, Jesus begins to read her mail. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And here's where the conversation gets very interesting. Verses 17 and 18, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, You got that right. For you've had five husbands, and the one that you're shacking up with now ain't your husband. Listen, dear ones, I'm going to tell you something. There's no pretense with Jesus. No pretense with Jesus. He knows. He already knows. So at this point, the woman has a revelation about this stranger sitting by the well who struck up this conversation with her. And she realizes, man, there is something different about this guy. Actually, here's what she said in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know, there wasn't a Jewish man anywhere who would, would, who would have interacted with this woman. But Jesus approaches her with love in his heart, dignifies her, honors her all the time, knowing that she was an outcast in her own community, divorced five times, and shacking up with a guy right now. Yet Jesus still dignifies and honors her. Now, see that whole thing about, you know, the five husbands and shacking up. See, that would raise a few eyebrows even in our culture today, right? But back then, in that day and age, she would have been totally shunned. She would have been the woman that everybody pointed to when she was out in public. You would see, you would see the other women telling her kids, stay away from her, you know the whispers. That's why she came out to the well at the middle of the day. She knew what people were saying about her, and it hurt her. She, wanted, she came out in the middle of the day because she was hoping no one would be there because she was tired of the accusations, the pointed fingers, and so forth. But Jesus, knowing all of that about her, doesn't look at her as an immoral woman, but instead as a miracle waiting to happen. Knowing that a touch from heaven can completely change her heart. And it dawns on her, wait a minute, wait a minute. She starts thinking, wait a minute. We've heard that there would be a Messiah coming, right? I've heard perhaps about this man that's doing miracles and raising people from the dead and opening blind eyes. Why would a Jewish man, knowing all this about me, knowing my sketchy past, Why would he speak to me? Why would he show me honor and respect? You know, maybe this is the guy, maybe this is the Messiah that we've been talking about, that we've been told about by the prophets. Let's read on in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This woman is so taken back, so shocked by what Jesus said to her, that she actually leaves her water. The whole reason she came out in the first place, she leaves it there and runs back into town to tell everyone what happened to her, even implying that this guy, this stranger that was by the well, even implying that, you know, he might be the Messiah that we've all been waiting for, looking for, right? Because I know he's at least a prophet. She knows that much, but maybe, just maybe, he's the one, The people in town, they hear this woman's story and they see the excitement in her eyes, And so they know something's happened to her, regardless of her sketchy past. So a bunch of them follow her back out to the well to see this prophet. So what do we see in this powerful story? Well, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, but the one that I want to focus on is this one right here. No matter how bad your life is, no matter how messed up you are, you're not too far gone for the love of Jesus to reach into your life and make a difference. This woman's story shows us that you don't have to have it all together to influence someone else towards Jesus. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to pray powerful prayers and be able to quote the Bible. You know, I I think it says somewhere in the Bible. No, no, no. you don't have to do that. No. You don't have to have it all together spiritually. You don't have to have all the things in your life fixed to be an influence. You just have to know, watch this. To be an influence, you just have to know who Jesus is and care about people. Think about that. And you can immediately be a light in this world and salt to those around you. You don't need 4,000 followers on social media to have a platform. You just need to care about one person, the next person in front of you. That's all you got to do. Just care about the next person in front of you. That's all you need to do to be an influencer. And if you can do that, you can be an influencer. You don't have to know it all, you just let your light shine. You just let the salt do what salt does. Listen, again, you have no idea how one word of encouragement, one word of hope, one expression of love might influence someone towards Jesus. So eventually the disciples come back with some food in verses 31 and 32. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. So they come back with the food, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know of. So the disciples get back from town, and they start handing out the Chick-fil-A sandwiches and waffle fries because everyone knows if Jesus were on earth today, he'd be eating at Chick-fil-A. So the disciples come back with some food, but to their surprise, he doesn't take it, which proves he was divine because no mortal person can turn down Chick-fil-A, right? Anyway, when they offered some food to Jesus, he declined it, and then he kind of gets spiritual on him. He says, my food is to do the will of God. I mean, that's kind of almost like an in-your-face, in your isn't it, All Right? That's almost like a rebuke. While y'all were thinking about food, I was here doing God's work. So this kind of confuses the disciples because the whole purpose for them going to town was to get some food to bring back so they could all eat. Now they come back with the food, they offer some to Jesus, and he turns it down. Verses 33 and 34. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? So they're thinking, he must have got something to eat somewhere. Again, Jesus kind of continues. He says, do you not say, verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So Jesus, continuing to get kind of spiritual on him, he, he uses a farming metaphor, and the harvest, listen, the harvest was always about changed lives. He said, the field is ripe for harvest. He said, but the laborers are few. For our purpose, we could say it this way. The field is ripe for harvest but the influencers are few. Listen, dear ones. Don't let culture rob you from your calling by limiting your understanding of influencers to someone on social media. It doesn't start with platform. It always, always, always starts with people. Influence starts with the person right in front of you. You're an influencer. This woman goes back to her town, tells everybody, and then the next part of the story says this in verse 39. Many Samaritans. Now, that right there would have been shocking. That statement right there, many Samaritans. The idea that anyone would believe that Jesus was the Messiah, let alone many Samaritans. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Why did many Samaritans accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. In other words, because of her influence. You see that? Because of her influence, this woman with a sketchy past, yet she had this influence. One unlikely woman who said, Jesus told me everything I did. When they came out to see Jesus, they begged him to stay in their village. And so he stayed for a couple of days long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Who did God use here in this story? Who did God use? Not an Instagram star, not a professional athlete, not a celebrity but a regular, ordinary, everyday, broken, sinful woman who had been transformed by Jesus Christ. You have influence exactly where you are. You don't have to have your whole life together to have influence. You already have it. The big idea is simply this. You are a person of influence. You are a person of influence. It's not a question of if. It's a question of what kind, how much influence you have. You are an influencer at home, at work, here at church, If you want, you can be a positive influence in others. But here's the thing, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. Being a positive influence or being a positive or helpful influence doesn't just happen because we don't gravitate towards being a positive influence. We're not salt and light by nature. As sinful, broken people, we default towards negative influence, not positive influence. That's why we need to be intentional about the things we do and the the things that we say that will help us be the saltiest and brightest Jesus followers that we can be. So how? How do we ensure that we're cultivating salt and light in our lives? Well, there's really no pat answer to that, but I'm going to give you five things as we wrap this thing up. Five things, five takeaways from this story that will help us leverage our influence in a way that would honor God and build his kingdom. We need to recognize these five things. First, your greatest opportunities often arrive unplanned and unexpected, right? Their greatest opportunities often arrive unplanned. Jesus and his disciples intended to spend only a short amount of time in the city. They planned to eat lunch and move on. While the disciples went into town to get food, Jesus waited by the well. The Bible said he was tired from the journey. See, and this is when the opportunity presented itself. We, listen, we always need to be on the lookout for these God-ordained moments because we never know when they're going to happen. But I will tell you, they typically happen when we least expect it. Two, God expects his people to treat all people like people. We've already talked about the the racial history here between Jews and Samaritans, so I don't need to elaborate that anymore. Suffice to say, when you look at what's taking place in our world today, and I think we can all agree what's going on right now with an election year, the more things change, the more they stay the same, don't they? All the more reason we need to be careful, be intentional, right? No one is less human, not in God's eyes, not in the eyes of his people. No one is beyond redemption, not in God's eyes, The Bible makes it very clear. We all stand before God on equal ground. Paul said this in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Point number three, we need to learn to speak the truth without condemnation. Again, how appropriate is that for today? Right now. This woman was living an immoral lifestyle. Jesus didn't ignore it. He didn't ignore it. He didn't give her a pass. He didn't encourage it. He didn't condone it. He simply addressed it with just the facts approach to let her know that this was an area of her life that she would have to deal with. Do you realize that of the 20 verses recorded, of this recorded conversation that Jesus had with this woman, of the 20 verses, only three talk about her sinful life. See, that spoke volumes to me because I think we get that turned around, don't we? We would spend probably 17 talking about the person's sinful, shameful life. No. When it came to the subject of sin, Jesus said all that was needed, as much as was needed, that's all he said. He said enough to let the Holy Spirit convict her and that was it. It's interesting that Jesus, who had every right to condemn, think about this, Jesus who had every right to condemn people didn't condemn us. Instead he said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Number four, winning souls must be more important than winning arguments. Again, is that appropriate today or what? right, I'm gonna start preaching here in a minute. The Christian life, listen, the Christian life isn't merely about intellectually accepting certain propositional statements as truth. The Christian life is about giving God all of you, loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Christian life is about worshiping God in spirit, And in truth. And listen, truth doesn't refer to correctly acknowledging the right set of facts. It refers to having a personal relationship with the living truth, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, number five, our objective is to help people connect with Jesus. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep focused on what this is all about, people. It's all about helping people connect with Jesus. I want my life. I hope you want your life. I want the ministry of this church to be more than anything else about. Jesus helping a lost world connect with him. Our objective is to help people connect with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer for the world today, the only answer. So when you listen to someone who's hurting at work and you represent the love of Jesus by not judging where they are, but by simply loving them, accepting them where they are, you're being an influence. When you post a scripture, share a podcast, or just send an encouraging verse to someone, You could influence someone that you don't even know. Just by the way you worship, by the way you carry yourself, by who you are and whose you are, you can be an influence. God wants us to remember our call to be salt and light and that we wouldn't be intimidated by that truth, but we would embrace it, own it, take ownership of it and allow him to use us by the power of his Holy Spirit to influence others for his kingdom and purpose. Recognizing that he can use us right where we're at. No matter how pristine and wrinkle-free our life might be or how sketchy and dark our past might be, God can use the good works that result from our salt and light to influence others and draw others to him. So let's start being intentional about leveraging the influence we have. No matter how great or small, that we would be mindful to speak a word of encouragement, offer some expression of hope to others. And don't get discouraged and quit planting seeds of hope and encouragement. Just because you don't see immediate results, don't get discouraged. You just continue to be salt and light and love people that God brings your way. Today, maybe there's a series of influences that have helped you realize that, you know, I want to follow Jesus. Maybe some that helped you recognize your need for God's grace. But you might have a hesitation because you feel like you're not good enough, not ready enough or you've done too many bad things for God to ever accept you. And if, you, if that's you, I've got a question for you. Have you ever killed anyone? I don't know what I would have done if someone would raised their hand. A, <laughs> thank you, Jesus. But seriously, sometimes when people tell me that they don't think God could love or accept it, and they start telling me about you know, some of the things they did in their past, this is, I, I ask them, have you ever killed anyone? And this is why I ask them that. Do you realize that the person that wrote most of the New Testament was a Christian murderer. Not just a murderer, he killed Christians. The guy that wrote most of the New Testament, Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, he was a murderer, right? So I'm thinking, you know, if God can use him, I'm thinking your checkered sketchy past is no problem for God, right? So if that's you, I I wanna tell you that That's how you come to him. That's how we all come to him. Just like this. This woman in the story came to him. You come as you are. And when you call on him, Jesus, the son of God, who died for our sins and rose again, when you call on him, he hears our prayers, he forgives us, and he makes us new. That's the reason some of you are here today, and you know it. You know it. So if you're spiritually thirsty, you'd like to try this living water that Jesus talked to this Samaritan woman about and walk in this new life that God offers us through his son, Jesus Christ, would you be willing to pray this simple prayer with me? Just bow your heads. Say, Jesus, I really do want to begin following you. I want that living water. I want the water that satisfies my soul today. By faith, I give my life to Jesus. Father, forgive my sins. Change my life. Make me new. Jesus, I believe you died for me, and you rose again so I could know your Father. Fill me with your Spirit so that I can follow you, know you, and be a light in a dark world. My life is not my own, and I give it all to you. Thank you for new life, and now you have mine. In Jesus' name.